But you can turn with in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. As we continue our Advent focus, the story of the wise men from the East. We'll look at the star of the king in verses 1 through 12. So I'll begin reading at verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Israel with him, all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold... The star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Amen. Well, let us pray. Amen. Now let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we're thankful for the gift it is again to come into your house this day. And thank you for the gift it is to learn about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the King. Thank you that he is the one who came into this world, the one who is fully God, but also fully man, like us in every way, yet without sin. Thank you that he is the one who came to save his people from their sins. Thank you that he is God with us. And we're thankful that his salvation has eternal significance and his salvation does have worldwide or his coming does have worldwide significance as well. For you have saved a great multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we pray, O God, that we would see the one who is the king here in these words. We pray, O God, that we would hear you speak to us in these words. And we pray, O God, that you would help us to worship all the more. We confess, O God, worship is so important for us, yet it is so difficult for us to do in our remaining corruption. We ask, O God, as we consider our King and consider your salvation that you've brought to us and given to us, we pray, O God, that it would stir our hearts to worship you all the more. So we ask, O God, you'd be with us again by your Spirit. Give us illumination from on high to understand uh, what is going on here. Give us that uh, enlightening of our hearts all the more to understand your redemptive purposes And thank you, O God, they are fine fulfillment in Christ the Lord and Christ the King. So speak to us now by your spirit, we pray. Strengthen your saints, save sinners. In all things, we pray that you be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, the past few weeks, as we've sung a few Christmas tunes, I tried to point out that we ought to stop and consider uh, what those tunes are saying, what the lyrics are saying. Because if you're like me, I grew up in a Christian home and we sang those Christmas tunes a lot. And perhaps I've sung them so often that I've forgotten to understand or think about what is going on or the theology that is being said in those Christmas hymns. Well, perhaps the same thing is true of these wise men from afar. We've heard about them for such a long time. We've heard about them growing up. We ponder and consider them, hopefully, uh, every day of the year, but especially during this time of the year. All the times we lump them in with the shepherds and our idolatrous nativity displays. But do we ever stop and consider the significance of what is going on? Do we stop and consider what it means that these ones came to search for the one who is the king of the Jews? And that's what Mark or Matthew wants to show us this morning, especially in contrast with how the Jews so-called respond to his coming. There's a contrast here between how these wise men respond to the birth of the Lord and also how the Jews respond to the birth of our Lord. And it centers in around this idea of kingship, the idea of worshiping the one who is the one true king. And so the problem I think that we see here is very clear is when the king is not worshipped. This is a problem in Israel. It's a sad state of affairs when the Jews have no clue that the Messiah has come. It's the Gentiles who figure that out first rather than the Jews. So it's a sad thing to see when the king is not worshipped. But also it shows and highlights the problem for all of mankind. The greatest problem, the greatest sin, the disease that all man has when they're born into this world is idolatry. Love of self, love of other things, rather than love of God most high. That's why we need salvation. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need him to come and save his people from their sins. And thankfully, there is a king who is born of a virgin and one honored by Gentiles, even as a child. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see the one who is the one true king. And he's going to point out to us and behold for us this one true king through the story of these wise men. And so we'll look at this idea of the one true king under two headings this morning. It centers in around that word, behold. Behold the wise men who seek the king in verses 1 through 6. And secondly, behold the king the wise men worship in verses 7 through 12. So behold the wise men who seek the king. And then behold the king the wise men worship. So let's first look at behold the wise men who seek the king in verses 1 through 6. And notice in verses 1 and 2, we see Gentiles who seek the place of the king. But specifically in verse 1, we see the setting and when this all takes place. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, the king. We haven't been told yet in Matthew's gospel where he would be born or where he was born. We've already seen his genealogy, his royal line, his fleshly line. We've seen his miraculous birth. We've seen his name, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. This signifies that God is with us. But we have not seen yet where he was to be born. We haven't had that information given to us just yet. Well, here it is. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, we know this. 
We have divine eavesdropping here for us. God has given us as the reader some more information than the wise men have. And then unfortunately, even the Jews until they actually go and search it out. You see, we know that Jesus is born in the house of David, and he's going to unpack for us what that means. So it's after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, but it's also in the days of Herod the king. Herod, uh, the Herods, there are multiple Herods, were client kings of Rome. What that meant was is that Alexander the Great did not spread Greek uh, culture as far as he would have liked. And so after Rome took over, they didn't spread it as far uh, because it was not Hellenized or did not have Greek speaking spread to the farthermost parts of the empire. They set up client kings, men who would know their people better, men who would know their subjects better. And so they raised up and used uh, guys like Herod of the line of Edom, the Hasmonean dynasty. It's what is, is what it's called. And this Herod is known as Herod the great, a different Herod from the Herod who comes when Jesus is crucified, but this one is Herod the great. So it's after Jesus has been born and in the days of Herod. And notice Matthew says, behold, and he says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, there isn't much we know about these wise men. There's only so much we can glean from the text and from the language or the word magi, which is used for wise men here. It is probably the case that they are from either Persia, Arabia, or Babylon, but somewhere far away from Israel. So they are Gentiles through and through. And it is probably the case that they were experts in reading the stars. Now, that might trouble us, that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but brethren, we have to just let the Bible speak and let it unfold for to help us see what is going on here. I'm not advocating for reading the stars, that's not right. You'll see what's going on here as the text unfolds, but they were Gentiles and they were once pagans, but yet as ones who read the stars, there was something different about this star in the west it rose in the east and shone over some place in the west something was quite different about it now don't let that trouble you it's going to be hard for us to fathom that but let us see what it means as the text unfolds and if i may say as well we don't necessarily know that it was three of them right (laughs) there's three gifts it probably could have been three but we don't actually know how many they actually were i just wanted to say that uh to you know, again, burst your bubble. It might not be three. So could be many of them. We don't know the specific number, but what we do know is very clear is that they were great men. They were these astrologers. They were wise men. They were Gentiles. And one thing is very clear. They sought the king. They sought the one who is the king of the Jews. Again, a Gentile would refer to the one who is the king of the Jews. And so we see that there. Where is he who has been born? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, again, what exactly does did this star mean? There's a lot of ink spilt on what it could be or could not be. Some highlight perhaps it's not a star at all. 
Uh, but perhaps others say it actually is a star, but God used that star in a miraculous way to guide these men. Some even connect it with the shepherds when the star shines above the place where he's born. That could be the case. But one thing is very clear is that they saw something about this star and they realized they had to go to Judea to see what was going on. And we must also remember as well, after Israel was sent into exile, there were Jews who were spread to different parts of the world. So maybe they did have some understanding of, of, of perhaps some Jewish uh, prophecies. Now, it could be the case that Numbers 24:17 was in their mind. It might not be the case that Numbers 24:17 was in their, their mind, but Matthew wants us to see Numbers 24:17. So turn with me to Numbers 24:17. There is a clear allusion with the language that is there. And what's interesting about Numbers 24, it's Balaam's fourth prophecy. Remember Balaam, Balax, uh, the king of Moab, wanted to pronounce curses upon Israel. He used Balaam. And every time Balaam tried to pronounce a curse, it was always a blessing God gave to Israel. This is his fourth and uh, fourth one. And it's all about the one true king. It's all about the king over the nations. And what's interesting here is you do have a Gentile proclaiming the coming of a star. And notice in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. He goes on to talk about various different nations as well, but it highlights that there is worldwide significance of the one who is the star who would come. And perhaps as well, Matthew, uh, it's part of God's guiding and leading to show the cosmic significance of the one who has been born king of the Jews. Henry says it was a candle set up on purpose to guide them to Christ. The idolaters worship the stars as the host of heaven, especially the Eastern nations, whence the planets have the names of their idol gods. We read of this, of a particular star in Amos 5. But thus the stars that had been misused came to be put to the right use to lead men to Christ. The gods of the heathen became his servants. So we might not like everything about the background of these men, but one thing is clear. They've come to seek the one who is the king of the Jews. And notice they don't just come to seek him. We have come to worship him. We have come to pay homage to him. We've come to bow down before him. We recognize that there is this one. There is this one who is the king of the Jews, and he is king overall, and we come to see him. Now, we know they didn't know everything. They didn't have everything because they come to Jerusalem, and they have to ask, hey, Where's the one who is born king of the Jews? They need some help to get to his location further than just the star. They need some biblical prophecy to give them some aid. And notice they have that aid from Herod and from the leaders in Israel. But one thing we need to see in three through six is how Jews have not sought the king. Now, it is probably the case that it's been two years or at least two years or less since Jesus has been born. It's probably the case it wasn't right away. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, one who has been born king of the Jews, the one who is the savior of the world, the one who has come to save you know, Israel's longing for the Messiah. Why is there no parade? Why is there no fanfare? Why have the Jews not figured it out yet? 
You see, in a lot of ways, this is an indictment against Israel. You see, what's interesting in Luke's gospel, the first to come and worship the newborn king are shepherds, men from lowly, a lowly place. But in Matthew's gospel, after he has been born, look who comes to worship him first. Gentiles. Where have the Jews been? The Jews had Micah 5. The Jews had Emmanuel or uh, um, Isaiah 7. Where have they been? Why has the king not been sought? Why has the king not been found? And so Herod doesn't like this because Herod, like any tyrant, he was an Edomite. And so he probably, he knew that the Davidic dynasty had right to the throne. And so any king who would come and might try to take that throne, he would wish to take them out. But we don't get that information yet. We just know he's troubled. Verse three, like any petty tyrant, they get troubled by any sort of threat. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. They're probably more concerned with what Herod would do uh, as a terrible, awful, petty tyrant who he might kill next. And so they want to appease him rather than actually search for the king. And so he gathers the chief priests. He gathers the leaders together again. Why haven't they sought to worship him? Why haven't they sought the king? And notice what's going to be on their lips. They should have, again, they're going to uh, speak Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5 in just a moment. But it shows they have not believed. It shows they have no faith. It shows that they were not looking for the one true king. So as much as it is remarkable that the wise men have come, it's equally remarkable that Israel has not worshipped him. And it's an indictment against the nation for their failures to honor the one true king. And so verse four, when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And it's not so he can go and worship him. It's so he can try and take him out. And notice in verses five and six, these chief priests and scribes then speak Micah five in second Samuel five. They speak it if they don't go seek him as well. They're more concerned with appeasing the false king than worshiping the one true king. But nonetheless, even on the lips of these fearful and uh, unbelieving Jews, we still see truth. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will judge my people israel we see an amalgamation going on here of of various passages again micah 5 and second samuel 5 as well it shows the interpretation that is going on here bringing prophecy into its into its fulfilling context in micah chapter 5 micah of morasheth prophesies the same time as isaiah the prophet and also to the southern kingdom of judah And one of the problems going on in Micah's time is the problem of wicked, terrible, awful rulers. I guess there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's wicked, terrible, awful rulers who do not shepherd countries, let alone the people of God. You know, the problem of false teachers, the problem of bad shepherds is clear even in the timing of Micah and in the timing of when our Lord and Savior uh, takes on human human flesh. But Micah, I need to get there. Micah 5, 2, we read, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, one to be ruler in Israel. The emphasis seems to be that the ruler has come out of a small place. Bethlehem was a small town. You know, we think it's great because, you know, we read our Bibles and we love the Lord, but Bethlehem itself was a small place. Yes, it was the so it was the you know the part it was where uh, where David was from as well, but as far as a town goes, it was not the one you'd expect a king to come from. And so again, Matthew interprets it for us. In Micah five, it says, "Though you are little among the thousands," and in Matthew it says, "Though you are by no means least among the thousands." Matthew's interpreting it for us. He's showing that yes, the reason you are uh, you uh, the reason that you are no longer small is because of the one who comes from that place. And so there's hope for the remnant in Micah's day, even as Assyria comes, even as Babylon eventually comes, that there's going to be one who shall come from Bethlehem, one ruler to be over all Israel. And in Micah's prophecy, he's looking past the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, he's looking to a time when their Israel shall be united again. Well, we have that fulfillment. In Bethlehem of Judea, thus it is written, uh, in Bethlehem, uh, to you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler. A king shall come, and notice what he shall do. He shall shepherd my people Israel. That's Second Samuel 5, 2. And that's where we see God speak to David and say, you are the shepherd of my people Israel. Remember, David was a shepherd to a literal shepherd one who cared for the sheep, one who protected the sheep, one who guided the sheep, one who walked ahead of the sheep, one who fought bears and lions for his sheep. Well, Christ himself is that shepherd of his people as well. Christ himself, just like David shepherded the people, Christ himself will be that shepherd to guide his people. Again, the implication is the chief priests and Herod are not doing that. Israel has no chief priest. Uh, Israel has no shepherd, but the one who is the ruler has come. And the wise men saw it first, even without this prophecy. I think that's what Matthew wants us to see in verses 1 through 6. The remarkable salvation of men from afar. Brother, when we consider the sinners God saves, really ought to cause us to stop and be in wonder of the way in which he does it. And who he calls out of darkness into marvelous light. Again, the overarching general application is how the unexpected sinner comes to saving knowledge in Christ. And we see that with these men here. In fact, Ryle lumps him in as one of the greatest trophies of Christ's kingdom, along with the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross just saw the battered, bloodied, and bruised Savior, and he believed. Well, these men saw a star. And they're not looking for the star. They're looking for what the star signifies. And they came anyway. They didn't have Micah 5, but yet they still come. They didn't, and when they, and we'll see as well, when they come before the young child, how is it that they have faith? How remarkable is it that God saves wretched sinners, pagans from their idol worship? Now, thankfully, he saves Jews from their idol worship as well, but he wants us to see how he saves not just Jews, but Gentiles. There is worldwide significance for the Savior being born, and Matthew highlights that for us with the salvation of these wise men. Behold, he says, pay attention, wise men. 
Behold, they have come. Now, brethren, thankfully, God still saves. It might not be a guiding star like this one here. But remember, brethren, who is the morning star of David? Revelation 22. Isn't it Christ? And doesn't Christ call, draw sinners to himself? Doesn't the Father draw sinners to Christ, who is that morning star, who is the light of the world, the one who saves his people from their sins? The one and way the way in which one is saved is by looking to Christ, not to the stars, but to the Savior, to believe upon him and find mercy and forgiveness in him. Because God really does save the most unexpected people. You want to know how I know? Look in the mirror. And you want to know how I know? Look around. God saves the most unexpected people from their sins. He saved Magi from the East. He saved a thief on the cross. And he saves a wretch like you and I. Spurgeon says, It is a marvelous thing that the Magi from afar should know that a great king was born and should come from so great a distance to do him homage. For the world's wise men are not often found bowing at the feet of Jesus. Behold the wise men from the East who came to seek the king. Let's then look then at the wise men, how they worship the king. Behold the king, the wise men worship in verses 7 through 12. But notice in verses 7 and 8, we see Jews who want to kill the king. Now, what's interesting is if I was reading this for the first time or you were reading this for the first time, we actually wouldn't really know what Herod would do, right? We just know the rest of it. I mean, he doesn't. there's no indication yet that he's going to kill children under two, right? It just says he's troubled. We just kind of bring our further reading back into it. But if we were reading it for the first time, we might perhaps be taken aback. Maybe Herod does really want to go worship him, right? But we know from verse 16, that's not the case. But in any case, Herod secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And again, as I said, it might be that Jesus is at least two years old or younger uh, so it's probably sometime after the birth. These men had a great journey to come, a lot of peril. I think we forget that too. I mean, Babylon's not close to Jerusalem. I mean, there would have been lions and tigers and bears and bandits and all sorts of types of bad stuff. I mean, we're so we're so pampered in our cars when we drive and so pampered in our airplanes when we fly over. You know, we don't realize that if we were walking all that distance, there could be animals out there to get us and bandits to try and kill us. So it was a great journey they had to engage in to come so that they're far away. And also the language of child versus baby, although child is used in Luke 2 to refer to one who's 40 uh, days after birth. But in any case, between probably not right away, but between, you know, two and young, uh, younger is probably uh, where uh, the age of our Lord. So he determined when the star had appeared. And after he determines when it is, that's what he uses then for his decree later on, which we'll see not next week, but on Christmas Day, I'm really sorry, it's just the way it lined up, but on Christmas Day, we're going to see how Herod kills a bunch of uh, little ones, but it's all to fulfill uh, prophecy, uh, but we're going to see what he does to try and take out the king. We're not there yet, we can be a little happier at this point, but the star appears in verse 8. He sends them to Bethlehem and says, go and search carefully for the young child, for when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, again, like I said, we don't know what he's going to do, but does anybody believe the government? I mean, did the government help us in any sort of way? I mean, uh, does anybody believe a king who, you know, kills and murders and tries to take people? I mean, he's lying. We know that from the rest of 
the section. We know what he is going to do in verse 16. But for now, it seems like he wishes to come and worship the king. We know his plan and his plot to make it seem like he uh, wishes to come and give the one true king his due, but we know he will not. But for all, if we're reading it just the first time, it might seem like that. But then we actually see in verses 9 through 11, how when Gentiles actually worship the king, when Gentiles actually come and bow down before the king. And notice the star comes again, behold, or verse nine, when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Again, it was a remarkable faith for these foreign men to follow the star, but also to believe on the one to whom the star would lead them. Henry says, extraordinary helps are not to be expected where ordinary means are to be had. Well, they had traced the matter as far as they could. They were upon their journey to the Bethlehem. But this is a populous town. Where shall they find him when they had come thither? Here they were at a loss at their wit's end, but not at their faith's end. They believed that God who had brought them thus far by his word would not leave them there, nor did he. For behold, the star which they saw in the east went before them." So they have the town, they have the prophecy, and they have the star that continues to guide them to the place where the child is, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And notice their response in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It had been a great journey, a well-spent journey. Now they finally found what they were looking for. And what's so remarkable remarkable is they find what they're looking for in a child. Young child, young child. And notice what happens. They go in, verse 11, when they come into the house, they saw the young child with with Mary, his mother, probably emphasizing the helplessness still. Even two-year-olds still need their mothers, right? Two and younger, I mean, what? Babies are the most helpless, what, you know, in the world. When you compare with other animals, Babies, human babies are the most helpless, and yet they bow down and worship the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worshiped him. That is a remarkable faith. They had just stood before Herod the king, but we don't see any language of bowing down, do we? They come and bow before the one who is a young child. Ryle says, now Ryle thinks that Christ is closer to when he is first born, but that's okay. Uh, They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak, and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. They fell down and worshipped him. The young child is who they fall down and worship. And notice they don't just fall down and worship, but they bring him gifts as well. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is probably why some people think it's three, because there's three gifts. But notice very extravagant gifts. It shows the wealth these men had. The frankincense is probably used for medicinal purposes, but also for, you know, as a a sacred type of uh, uh, substance. 
the myrrh was an aromatic substance that was helpful as well, but all very costly, all very expensive. Certainly gold was expensive as well. And I think there's, you know, uh, we see their worship of Christ, but there are other things that we can see as well with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Well, when it comes to the Old Testament, this is fulfilling something we read at the outset. You see, one of the promises of Zion, when the new heavens and new earth are in breaking and the king comes, is that the nations shall come and give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not always like with those three together, but that's present. Or we even see this during Solomon's reign, do we not? In Psalm 72 is the Psalm of Solomon. And it's all about when we consider the kings in Israel, David was the one after God's own heart, but Solomon was the wisest king and his reign was the greatest in Israel. And uh, uh, kings and great uh, people from afar came and brought gifts to him. So 1 Kings 10 certainly is in view with the Queen of Sheba. I've heard of the wisdom. I've come to see it. Or in Psalm 72, we can turn to Psalm 72. All about the regal reign, the extent, the universality of the Messiah's reign. In verses 11 and 12, uh, verses 10 and 11, talking about the rule of his, the, of the king, of the Messiah. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. And all kings shall fall down before him. Yes, maybe they're not kings, but nonetheless, it is still great men coming to bow down before him or in verse 15 and he shall live and the gold of sheba will be given to him that is the nation shall recognize who this king is and they shall bring their gifts to him and this is also what we see in isaiah 60 which was our call to worship when we talk about the light that is shone in zion what they shall see in the kingdom all around and notice many shall come from afar as well Isaiah 60, at the end of verse 5 there, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. And those from Sheba shall call shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. That is, the nations of the earth shall come and worship the one true king. What makes it also so remarkable as well is it's not the wise man they come to see, right? The Queen of Sheba comes to see the wisest man. Now, yes, Jesus will be the wisest man, but they come to see a young child and they bring this young child gifts. They see in that young child, the savior of the world, and they believe that he is the one they have been looking for. So we see even with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, God is fulfilling his promises of old, found in and fulfilled in Christ the child. What's also very practical about our God with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, we see how God provides for his people and God protects his people at the end of 11 and in verse 12. Notice the kind providence to Joseph and Mary. They're going to go into exile pretty soon, right? (laughs) They're going to have to flee. But God here, even before they flee, he gives them provision. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh before they enter in and have to leave or enter, uh, enter into a land that is not their own. 
and thankfully God gives them some aid before they enter in. But God also protects the Magi as well. Then, being divinely warned in a dream, God is going to use the same word is used for Joseph in um, verse 22 as well, concerning uh, another Herod that comes up. Uh, He's going to warn him where he should go. But God warns the wise men here in a dream that they should not return to Herod. God protects, God warns, God makes sure they don't go back to Herod, because maybe they thought, yeah, okay, we'll go back and bring word, great. But God warns them here, and they depart from their own uh, to their own country another way, just as mysterious as they came, <laughs> so too they leave in a mysterious way as well. These wise men from afar, led by a star to Christ the King, They give him honor and praise and worship. And all this is meant to teach us about the king who is to be worshipped. Again, the repetition throughout is king and worship. The king who is to be worshipped. And brethren, if we, Christ is that true king. And if we've been redeemed and saved in him, should we not worship him? Should we not praise him? And the blessing is when we gather together as God's people, it is for that purpose. Yes, it's, you know, thankfully God meets us, God works in us, God comforts us when we gather. But the most important thing when we come together is to worship the one true king. And thankfully that one true king feeds us as we worship him. We are rest as we worship him. And thankfully, we worship by faith now. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult to drag ourselves out of bed and to get to church. But it's a blessing to be able to worship the one true king together by faith now. And did you pay attention to hymn 154, stanza three? It highlights this. As they offered gifts most rare, at that cradle rude and bare, So may we, with holy joy, pure and free from sin's alloy, all our costliest treasures bring Christ to thee, our heavenly King. And brethren, isn't it true that we have the word of God that tells us all about our Christ, not just his being born, but his living and his dying and his rising again in his current session? Should we not have faith and trust in him? And should we not worship him all the more because we have a fuller knowledge than even these wise men had? May it cause us to worship our king now. And brethren, the reason we ought to worship our king now isn't just because of the salvation he brings, but also because it's what we're going to be doing forever. One day we shall worship by sight forever with the other redeemed saints. And that was 154 stanza five. In the heavenly country bright, need they know created light. Thou its light, its joy, its crown. Thou its sun, which goes not down. There forever may we sing alleluias to our King. Christ is the morning star of David. He shall come again to judge the living and the dead and bring his kingdom in forever. And if you're not in Christ, I implore you, I urge you, believe upon him. Will you come before the king and believe upon him? Will you bow before him in faith, believing that he lived, died, and rose again? Will you believe like these wise men did? Because it truly is a remarkable faith that these wise men came from afar 
to worship the one child as the one true king. Let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the salvation that you bring to unexpected sinners. We're thankful, O oh God, that you shine as a light to show who the one true king is. Thank you, O oh God, that you call sinners out of darkness into marvelous light, that you save them and draw them. And we pray, O oh God, today you would do that very thing. And thank you so much, O oh God, uh, for the gift it is to worship. We confess in this fallen uh, in this present evil age where we still have remaining corruption, we confess, O oh God, that we struggle to worship, but we're thankful, O oh God, that one day we will worship by sight. One day we will worship without the uh, the heaviness of the remaining corruption that we have. And we pray, O oh God, that as we worship, it would be a time of rest for us. It would be a time of joy for us. For we have found the one true king. We have been lost, and now we have been found. And those who seek you, O oh God, are the ones you have sought. And we're thankful, O oh God, that you're the one who calls forth. You're the one who gives all the gifts and benefits that we need. You're the one who opens eyes and gives ears to hear, to believe on Christ the Lord and Christ the King. Thank you that he is fully God and fully man. Thank you that his name is Jesus and he came to save his people from their sins. Thank you that he is God with us. And we pray, O oh God, that you would be with us now, even as we worship. And we long, O oh God, for the time where we shall worship you world without end. And we're thankful, O oh God, that we see uh, your remarkable saving work to save such unexpected sinners. And thank you, O oh God, you've saved such unexpected sinners who gather here this day for your God who is gracious and good. So help us now to give you glory and praise and honor. Help us now, O oh God, to worship you, the one true King. And nothing, it's not because we have done anything, but because you are gracious and good to save. So we ask, oh God, you'd be with us now by your spirit. Give us strength as we go into the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.